Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. I got to meet a lot of highly motivated people when I was an MP. For some, their cause was so great that their work is a vocation. Karen Pollock is one of those people. As the driving force and chief executive of the Holocaust Education Trust, Karen has dedicated herself to ensuring that young generations understand the Holocaust and the lessons it teaches us. I spoke to her in lockdown about the work of the Trust and how she copes with the sheer weight of responsibility her job brings. You can tell in the interview that I admire her. When you listen to our conversation, I think you'll understand why. Karen, thank you for your time this morning. I know how busy you are um, and you're on persons of interest this is me having longer conversations with people I've met over the years who I find interesting. And I am desperately pleased you're in because you're one of the most interesting people I've ever met. But before I start asking you questions, I'm going to describe what I can see now. Sitting behind you, there's a very nice looking coffee machine and microwave. And in my left hand of the screen to your right, I can see a saddle of a bicycle of some kind. Is this your lockdown home office I'm describing? Yes, I am sitting in my lounge stroke dining room with the kitchen behind me. The coffee machine is my morning ritual. I love it. I won't say what it is. You know, we don't want to start promoting brands. <laughs> um, but I will say the brand of the bike, which is my Peloton. That is a lockdown purchase and it is the best thing I did during lockdown. Do you do classes every day? Not every day, but I'd say probably four or five times a week. I really, really love it. I love the music. I love the energy. Puts me in a brilliant mood. And I have various members of my family who are also using a Peloton. I have hilarious conversations with them. Last week, I said to my brother, I haven't been on the bike. I need to get on. He goes, well, you do, because I've noticed you're a day down on your monthly activity. <laughs> you know, I've got these spies. Were you a gym goer before lockdown? Is this a replacement to the gym? Or is this you finding the time, because you're not travelling, to do more exercise? Oh, God, I don't know. I'm complicated with all of this. I used to go to the gym all the time. But I would say in recent years, less regularly. I had a trainer, so I was trying to keep it going. I wasn't into it. I found work too busy, life too busy, and wasn't fitting it in. And at the beginning of lockdown, I didn't have a Peloton. I rented a stationary bike, but used the Peloton app and loved it so much that eventually 
I mean, this is pretty much the only thing I've spent money on, but I know I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Very good. I want to tell you about a bike that I have got called a Carol. The biohacking world loves it because it's using research around high-intensity training. And the idea is that you do a short workout, but you do 20 seconds of like massive, nearly kill yourself, fast as you can pedal to get your levels really up high. Mm. And then you make incremental gains to hit your max. I want to tell you all about it because I've had it for three weeks, but I've not even plugged it in yet. Because <laughs> I'm in such a slump. But now you've shown me the Peloton, Karen, I think you might be the boost I need to get my act together. I mean, I know we need to not be talking about the bikes, but the thing about it is you get on and there's a lot of, you know, be a self-advocate, not self-critic and all this sort of inspirational stuff, but which I'm a bit cynical about. But there's something about it. It is addictive and I absolutely love it. And the music as well. They do loads of 80s stuff, which just really picks me up. I might have to try it. Anyway, let us do the thing we're here to do, right? You are the leader of the Holocaust Educational Trust. Tell me about this very important institution that you've been leading for quite a long time now. So the Holocaust Educational Trust, as you know, it's a charity and we teach in schools across the country about this devastating episode in our history. So we train teachers how to teach about the Holocaust. We organise for Holocaust survivors to share their testimony. There are still a small number of survivors living in Britain, but also around the world. But here there are these dedicated people who are committed to sharing what they experienced and what happened to their families. We create resources to use in the classroom. I mean, this is a really difficult subject and it's hard hitting and you want teachers to be able to use materials and teach about it in an effective and sensitive way that doesn't shock people, but actually educates them about history, but also start to have some critical thinking about humanity and about what happens when hate is left unchecked. So that's the principle of it. But we also organise visits to Auschwitz, which we were doing since the late 90s. But these visits were recognised, as you'll recall, by the then Chancellor Gordon Brown as something that should be not only available for two or 300 young people, but thousands. And as a result of his commitment to us, we initiated something where 3,000 young people visit Auschwitz per year. This has been continued under the coalition government under the conservative government and has huge support and is very much embedded in schools now across the country. The mission is to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive for the sake of the people that were murdered, for the people that survived, but also the lessons that we can learn. Tell me how many children have been taught in classes with the materials that you've provided and how many kids you've taken to Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. We've definitely taken over 40,000 young people to visit Auschwitz and we reach something like 100,000 young people per year with our survivor testimony. Hearing a survivor is an unforgettable experience and one that a lot of people will say they'll have gone through school and it's the one thing they may remember. It's a very compelling history from an eyewitness i'm going to talk to you about the survivors in a minute but tell me about the kids right how old are they when they go we take 16 17 year olds so 16 17 year olds all a bit boisterous on a plane a bit larky and jokey 
and then they reach the gates of Auschwitz. Tell me what kind of emotions happen when you take those groups of kids there. I mean, that's quite a thing, isn't it? It's actually a brilliant way of looking at it. When you meet all these young people, we have a seminar beforehand and they hear from a survivor. They meet each other because it's two students from every school, let's say, in a region. So they get to know each other as a group and they talk about their expectations and why they want to go and why it's important to learn about the Holocaust and learn about history. But they connect as young people and they're on their iPhones and sharing music, you know, whatever it is. And you'll be at an airport and there's this buzz and generally you're just amongst those are 16, 17 year olds. And you're absolutely right that that continues on the plane because we charter the planes. It continues on the coaches when we arrive at Krakow Airport and continue to Auschwitz. But suddenly it sobers. There's this dignified respect and attention that these young people give to the place that they're in. And I wouldn't say it's because they're suddenly shocked. You know, none of these people are coming as a punishment. None of them have been told they have to come. They want to be there. They apply to go in their school. They all have to commit to share what they've learned when they come back. They're from all different backgrounds. But there is this really dignified respect. It's the absolute opposite of what a lot of people will say about young people and perhaps their disregard for for serious things, you know? I mean, it's the opposite. They are a brilliant example. They probably set a great example to a lot of adults. What kind of questions do they ask the survivors? So the survivors generally aren't just talking to these 16, 17-year-olds, although they do. They tend to talk to 13, 14-year-olds in schools. That's when the Holocaust is taught. So it really will vary. Some people ask things like, do you forgive the Germans? which is a very common question. There isn't one answer that the survivors give, but a lot of them would say, I don't hold responsible children or grandchildren of the perpetrators. Do they forgive the actual perpetrators? That's a more difficult question. The survivors are very positive people, which is a strange thing to say. I mean, they've experienced the worst of humanity. And when we say the worst of humanity, it's not a turn of phrase. I mean, they've been starved, they've been beaten, they've become aware that their parent has gone to a gas chamber and murdered. They have lost everyone and everything. Yet, in their 80s and 90s, they talk about what happened. They're not softening it. They're telling you the reality. But they still have this incredible spirit. They are strong people. Were they strong at the time? I don't know. Has what they've been through defined them? I couldn't say. And they are all individuals and they all have unique stories. But that positivity means that young people often will ask, how did you manage to get through this? How are you okay today? You know, how have you managed to lead a normal life? The survivors are people I've got to know so well and I feel so privileged, but also I feel like they are extended family. Certainly some of them I've become very close to and I hate thinking about what they actually went through. It really upsets me when I really think about it because I can't bear to think that they did. This is what I wanted to get to you with, because I've been very privileged because you've introduced me to some of the survivors over the years and they're physically frail. They are in their 80s and 90s, aren't they? But what I would say, the people that you've introduced me to, they cherish life. They're generous in their time and sharing their wisdom. They're very outward-looking, almost with Buddhistic, cherubic smiles. 
it is slightly disconcerting when you realise what they must have carried, the heaviest of loads, with memories. And sometimes I think about you with that, Karen, because you clearly feel very responsible to them on a deeply personal level for their testimony, what they stand for, and to ensure that what they went through never happens again. Now, that must play on you very heavily, mustn't it? How do you cope with that? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, first of all, let me just say something about their life-affirming nature, because I think it's something that is really special. You're right that they love life. When something has nearly been taken away from you, I guess you value it even more. There's one survivor, he was interviewed actually by Judge Rinder, for hundreds of our young ambassadors, we have all these young people who, having visited Auschwitz, become ambassadors of the truth. They're sharing their knowledge. And he ended it with Hitler didn't win. And he referred to his children, his grandchildren and his great grandchildren. That point of you try to wipe us out, but not only am I still here, but look at this family I've created. And I think that a lot of the survivors are like that. They really believed in looking forward after the Holocaust and rebuilding their lives and creating the family and community that they had lost. And something that depicts that really well is there's an organisation called the 45 Aid Society, which was founded by Ben Helfgott, now Sir Ben Helfgott, who, as well as being a champion of Holocaust education and remembrance, he also incredibly was a Olympic weightlifting champion and headed the Great Britain team. He weighed a few stone after the Holocaust, after surviving Buchenwald. So to think that then he had that physical strength only a few years later in itself is incredible. But the 45 Aid Society, every year they have this gathering, like a reunion. And survivors used to, not as much now because of their age, come from all over the world. They had settled in Britain, but then maybe had moved to Israel, America, wherever. And they get together. And I'll never forget the first event I went to because I was so surprised You go to this event and I felt like I was at a bar mitzvah or a wedding. You're basically sitting around tables with families and it kicks off with Israeli music, but also, you know, current pop music. Everybody gets onto the dance floor and it's just a celebration. And it's the most wonderful thing. I my heart is so full when I see the survivors even now dancing and with their children and their grandchildren. It's just the most incredible thing to behold. But actually, to answer your question, <laughs> I said to you, I'm not very good at talking about myself and how I do things. I'm a very driven person, generally, and have become even more so over the years in my mission. And to me, what we're doing at the Holocaust Educational Trust, it is about history. And people do need to understand the specifics of how the Holocaust came about. And They do need to understand what it means for all of us as human beings. It's a defining episode in history. People should know about it. Like a rite of passage, I don't think you should leave school without knowing about the Holocaust. Mm. I am emotionally attached to the survivors, and I have to be very careful about that because pretty much since the beginning of the pandemic, I had a number of survivors I was calling every week, many of my colleagues too, Because they're like our family and our community and we want to know how they are and we know how much they miss this social interaction and 
just as I, in a sense, live off their positivity, they live off the enthusiasm and respect they get from young people and teachers and politicians and royalty, whoever it is, it really means something to them. But I'm still not answering your question about how I manage or how I bear the responsibility. It isn't all on me. And I have to remind myself of that. Yeah, I suppose the survivors themselves, I think, I won't be any use to them if I'm just feeling somehow only a duty to them, which I do have. I have a duty to the memory. And it's about their families. And it's about, the fact is, it is about Jews who were victimized and picked out just because they were Jewish. I'm not really answering your question very well, but I feel very passionately about carrying the memory. And I feel very passionately about calling out warning signs. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't articulate it any more than that. You've given me something. They give you something back with their positivity. I mean, my real point, though, didn't really need to be stated in that, you know, you too are carrying a heavy load and your knowledge and your experience, and as you become an expert on the Holocaust, it's very hard to retain a faith in humanity and the creative world in which we aspire to. And I'm just interested to know what drives you on that. And what interests me as well is your sense of mission extends to other areas of public policy. You've spoken out on the genocide in Rwanda and reached out. You've spoken out recently on the Uyghurs. You recognise the signs from your historic knowledge. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, first of all, remarkably, even though I've been doing this for a very long time, I still somehow balk at the idea that I might be an expert. I'm not a historian and I never would claim to be. I'm also not a qualified teacher and I would never claim to be. I have run this organisation for 20 years and we're making an incredible difference, I think, but I'm very aware that there are much cleverer and more qualified people than me. Look, I grew up in a traditional Jewish family and I would say the values that I sort of inherited were not just about understanding my Jewish traditions and my identity and just making a difference generally, trying to be the best that I can be. And I really do believe that comes from my upbringing. I've just always felt that everybody needs to be good to each other. It sounds so fluffy. Um, but I have thought that. I've never been ashamed of my identity. I've been very proud. I'm very comfortable. So I've never been worried to tell somebody that I'm Jewish. And at university, I spent a lot of time abroad because I did languages. And there would be a Jewish festival. It would be the Sabbath. And I would explain to people why I'm not doing something. But I loved that. I, lo I felt like I was an ambassador for my, my identity, sharing what I do. And they were all people who shared what they do and their religion or their ways of life. And I think that's been something that I've really enjoyed and continue to enjoy. I, I don't know, I'm just very, I am very proud of being Jewish. But the other thing is, going back to the fundamental point, it was this thing of, there's a phrase in Judaism called tikkun olam, which is heal the world. And it's about not just caring about yourself, but caring about others. And how could I run the Holocaust Educational Trust and do what I do narrowly unaware of anything else going on around me. I think that would be really strange. Now, don't get me wrong, our mission is very clear and it's about the Holocaust and that's what we our charitable deeds are, that's what we do and that is what our expertise is. But the idea that I'm not going to say something about other events, I'm not calling them the Holocaust, just to be clear, and that's really important as the Holocaust 
moves from living history to history. It's a specific event with a specific nature. But to suggest that somehow that doesn't mean we don't speak about deep injustice like Rwanda or what's going on with the plight of the Uyghurs at the moment would be really remiss of me. And I, I, just one other thing about Rwanda, I still remember I went to Rwanda with a Rwandan survivor and a group of other people many, many years ago. It was the most incredible trip. I loved it. I loved being in the country and meeting a lot of people there. But I still remember meeting Desdemona. I think she must have been my age. I think I must have been 29 or 30. And she described what she'd been through. You know, we're talking rape and torture and witnessing her brother being killed. And I mean, it went on and on. It was, I was sitting opposite her. And not only have I remembered her and I remember her name, it's important to remember people and their specifics. But what I actually remember reflecting afterwards is I speak to Holocaust survivors many years later. I never sat with them when they had that raw testimony, when it was something that happened less than 10, 20 years ago. We've learned a lot about educating and raising awareness and sharing testimony and all those things around the Holocaust and the care for the survivors. We have to apply some of that to survivors of genocide since. And this idea of not forgetting uh, never again. I mean, I've known you for getting on for 20 years now. And you are, you've always been a relentlessly positive person. But in recent years, you know, there were some moments where we were in private conversation where you either expressed irritation with me or worse, disappointment, which I found very difficult because of who you are. And that was over anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And so there you are running this incredible charity with a very important mission, which is completely non-party political, non-partisan, respected by all sides of the House of Commons. And then all of a sudden, there's a period of history in the party that I revere where anti-Semitism rears its head. How difficult was that for you, given that... You know, it was a Labour government and then continued by the Cameron government that helped the trust be what it is today. It must have been very discombobulating and, and, and very worrying. But how, how did you deal with that? Tell me a little bit about how that impacted on your work. Uh, I don't know where to start. Um, I still don't think I'm over it. Um, Organisationally, we have a role to point out anti-Semitism. And we do that, whoever it is, however high up they are, you know, I mean, it really is irrelevant about who they are or what their political affiliations are. People have a responsibility in public life to, to be against racism. So, yeah, we will always call it out. Organisationally, how did we manage? I think it was more that there was this question of, I personally, as the chief executive, found myself constantly responding to the latest example of anti-Semitism from a Labour councillor, from a Labour activist, from a Labour member of parliament, whatever it was. It was just relentless incidents at first. And it was just sort of this strange diversion of attention. But you know, organisationally, we carry on teaching and we carry on training teachers and we carry on taking the visits to Auschwitz. 
I, I don't know how to talk about it because it's such a, it was such a, I lived and breathed dealing with anti-Semitism on my doorstep rather than when I started out, my first job was running the Parliamentary Committee Against Anti-Semitism. We were talking about anti-Semitism in Russia and we were talking about detained Jews in Iran. And then what I found was I was talking about something happening on my doorstep in real time, constant. And the whole way through, I did not take a moment to reflect or think. I was exhausted and I was, um, I wasn't downtrodden. I wasn't down. I was actually fighting, right? If anything, the reason I'm not over it is because I still cannot accept or forgive those people who were silent, who should know better, and who today will call out all sorts of issues, whether it's regarding anti-Semitism or others, but were not prepared to do it when it was happening in their own backyard. Mm. On a personal level, having worked with members of parliament from all parties, as I continue to do, but as a result, you do strike, whether it's friendships, it's certainly relationships that are long lasting. Mm. I have found it very difficult to navigate. And by the way, having lockdown has meant I haven't had to navigate it very much because I'm not interacting with people. But I recall going to a reception. I'm not sure that you were there, but it's a reception that you would definitely support. It's to do with music. Loads of Labour MPs. It was as if they formed a queue to talk to me privately about how upset they were and how much they were on my side. And as if they wanted me to say, they're there, you know, don't worry, you know, thank you. And instead, I just didn't say anything. Mm. And I left. Mm. And I was so upset because I had protected myself from having to have those interactions. Mm. There are people who I would go to Parliament for various meetings or events, and I would see them a lot and I would have a nice chat. And you're right, I am a positive, friendly person. And actually, I find it very hard not to be friendly to people. So the best thing for me is just not to see them. And I prevented myself from being in environments where I would have to face people who wanted to somehow absolve themselves of their responsibility. I don't know if I'm sounding, well, well I know what I'm sounding like, but it's how I feel. Mm. I still find it very, very difficult. And I find it a bit hypocritical. And I find it just hugely, hugely disappointing. That's about the relationships. But there is another key point here, which is that the Labour Party supposedly founded with anti-racism values did not recognise anti-Jewish hatred as racism mm. and were prepared to continue to allow it to be some sort of anomaly, like suggesting that it's somehow, this isn't typical when it was a stream of constant examples of anti-Semitism and association coming from the very top, giving it a license to breathe. You know, these things don't happen on their own. I'm active on social media. I and the Holocaust Educational Trust, of course we get anti-Semitism. We get it all the time. We get Holocaust deniers, we get haters, and it is part of the course, which is such a sad thing to say. And I have developed a really thick skin. 
And it just reinforces why I'm so sure that we are doing the right thing to protect the memory, to uphold the truth and tell people that anti-Semitism, you know, you have to understand that anti-Semitism mutates. It isn't the same thing that it was with Nazis in jackboots, but it's a disease and it, and it evolves and it is still alive. What did the survivors say to you about it? I can think of two key examples, but there were lots of conversations. One, I happened to just answer the phone when she called the office and she started saying to me how worrying it is. It really bothered me that a Holocaust survivor was worrying about the rise in anti-Semitism in a mainstream political party. Mm. Nobody was saying this is about to be the Holocaust. Nobody was saying that. But, you know, the survivors and most people would regard Britain as based on traditional, good, decent values. And that was being questioned in a really significant way. But there was one Holocaust survivor. At the time, I think she was 89. You'll recall that there was a rally opposite Parliament. It was known as the Enough is Enough rally when the final straw, if you like, of when Jeremy Corbyn had said a blatantly anti-Semitic mural he somehow supported it after a series of other events. And the survivor was there. And I just sort of couldn't believe. I mean, she would have got on the tube at the age of 89 from northwest London to stand on the muddy grass holding a banner saying enough is enough. Well, I just think that's shocking, isn't it? You know, that should have been enough to send a very strong message that things have got out of hand. And did you feel pressure from the community? You are a leader and you are an expert. You're very humble as well, so you don't, you'll deny that, but you are. You speak with authority. Clearly, because of your role as the head of the charity, you were very well networked into Parliament. So this is an issue, you, it came to you, not the other way around. But was there pressure from the community on you to try and resolve it or explain it or find a solution to it? I mean, that must have been quite intense, I would have thought, as well. It's really interesting. Um, Funnily enough, Tom, and I'm not saying it in a boastful way or whatever, I do think of myself as a leader when it comes to our community, actually, because I, I mean, no one was pressuring me. I was pressuring. Just to be clear, it's not just me, like there's a whole group of people really worried, upset, angry, baffled in a sense as to how has it come to this and what can we do? But it wasn't about how can we make up? What does reconciliation look like? For me, there was one clear reason that we all came together and had that rally and spoke in one very clear voice, which is that history has to look back and know that the Jewish people of this country said no and spoke loudly and said, this is not okay. I was sure there needed to be a strong signal. For us, for us as a community, as well as to the Labour Party. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, okay. So where now, then? You're still doing what you do with great poison, grace, despite what went on in the Labour Party. Where are you going to take the organisation in the next 10 years? Well, <laughs> I think it's important to say that, I mean, I work with really incredible people. So I may be the chief executive, but there are some extremely talented, committed people. It's a, it's a team that dedication is second to none. And it is to do with the mission, but it is actually to do with them as individuals as well. And the pandemic actually has been interesting for us because on the one hand, like everybody, we've had to adapt what we do. So we suspended all of our in-person work. We've taken everything remotely, lots of online lectures and workshops and survivors are on Teams and Zoom and it goes on and on. And loads of our young ambassadors have been on series of different programs with us. It's been brilliant. But the other thing we've been doing is developing and designing online programs. I'm talking software programs. So for example, depending when this series <laughs> comes out, but instead of taking 3,000 young people to Auschwitz every year, while we still can't charter those planes, and I can't see us being able to imminently, we've developed a Lessons from Auschwitz online platform that will involve virtual reality, live sessions to a whole digital program. Wow. Similarly, we are in conversations, and I'll just leave it at that, but very far down the line on developing some really incredible digital interactive work with our survivors and the authentic Holocaust sites that we're talking about for the future. We've always known that technology is crucial today and for the future in terms of young people and reaching people. But in fact, the pandemic has sharpened the focus. Um, so there are going to be some interesting projects like that. There's also going to be a National Holocaust Memorial and Learning Centre built hopefully next to Parliament, which we are heavily involved in and I champion. You're involved in that? Yeah. Right. Tell me about that. A commission was set up by David Cameron in 2013-14 to explore what more could be done for future generations to remember the Holocaust, amongst other proposals there was a recommendation that there should be a national memorial of some sort in this country. I remember many, many years ago, I'll never forget it, I was told there was a memorial in Hyde Park. It's the beginning of my time at HET. And I was in, you know, well, in those days, probably like, you know, a skirt suit and heels, like really <laughs> 80s, you know, and tottering around Hyde Park in search for what I was told was a memorial. And I just couldn't find it. And I eventually found in this hidden away area, a rock with a small Hebrew inscription, really unkept. The inscription had sort of come off, overgrown, litter, some really disgusting stuff. And I just thought, this is the Holocaust Memorial in our capital city. We don't have one. So I feel for posterity, for the future, we're not talking about the next five, 10 years. We're talking about the next 50, 100 years when the eyewitnesses are not here, mm. but there is a place to visit 
that tells you what the Holocaust was. And also, by the way, Britain's relationship to the Holocaust. I mean, I told you before that we started these visits to Bergen-Belsen because it's part of our shared history. British people liberated those camps. There are veterans who talk about what they saw, horrific testimony of the stench and the sight, and they just didn't know that's what they were going to face. But Britain took in young children through the kinder transport, like Alf Dubs, who you know. These were unaccompanied children who fled just before war broke out. The sad thing is that Britain didn't let in their parents. Most of those parents were murdered in the camps. So Britain's history is mixed. Britain fought with the Allies against the Nazis, but could we have, you know, bombed Auschwitz? And I think these are some of the things that will come through in this Memorial and Learning Centre. We may not have been occupied by the Nazis, but the Holocaust is a defining episode in history. It's a warning from history. I'd like to think that in 100 years' time, it is something that people know about and understand about humanity's capacity as well. You know, the Holocaust is a story mainly of loss and destruction, but there are also some incredible stories of individuals who made a difference. People that Yad Vashem, the Holocaust institution in Israel, call the righteous, Mm. the people who risked their lives to help save Jews, and that includes some British people like Frank Foley or Nicholas Winton, who helped children across from Czechoslovakia. I could go on and on. Tell me Frank Foley's story. Frank Foley's is a particularly amazing story, in my view. Frank Foley was officially somebody based at the British Embassy in Berlin. He actually was a spy, so he was part of MI6. He witnessed what was going on in terms of anti-Semitism towards Jewish people in Berlin and issues of the Nuremberg laws and segregation, and he knew about camps existing, and he started issuing visas to get people out of the country. In fact, his story only became known, it was in the past 20 years, his story is one where he saved probably over 10,000 Jewish lives, a remarkable number. He just was issuing visas to get them out of the country. He even walked into one of the camps under a premise of these people need to be removed because they're whatever subject. I mean, he risked his life. I remember there's an anecdote about Jews being hidden in his home at one point. There's a survivor that I work with now, Manfred Goldberg, whose mother turned up at the British Embassy in Berlin and found her way to Frank Foley's desk. And as a result, her father got out of Germany. She didn't, actually. She and Manfred were in the camps. But, you know, he made a tangible difference. But the thing about him that's so remarkable is that he did all of this. And then he just came back to the UK and carried on with his life. He settled in Stourbridge, as you know. That's right. Being a West Midlands man. This is the thing about the righteous or about people who make a difference. It isn't the people who gloat and who shout from the rooftops about themselves and about their actions. It's these really ordinary people who do extraordinary things and when asked about it would say, well, what else would I have done? Yeah. You know? And that's who he was. But there are so many other people like that. And we only know this story since we've lost him. And, and since we've lost him, is there's a statue for him and all of that. A statue unveiled by Prince William. That's right. A book, pivotal book, written by Michael Smith. Yeah. The other thing about Yad Vashem for me, you've stated it, which is why I actually agree with the memorial idea as well. 
because you realise that actually Britain did have knowledge of concentration camps. I think it was 1943 we formally knew. My dates might be wrong. But, you, you know, at the time, there were channels where people were begging us to bomb the camps, to take out the capacity of death early, and Britain didn't. I've been to Yad Vashem in um, Israel on my two visits, 20 years apart, and I remember the first time I went, what was I, in my 20s, and, you know, relatively well-informed. It was literally the first time I had knowledge of that, that there was a sort of ambiguity, however you want to describe it. We had the opportunity to destroy death camps sometime, many months before we actually liberated them and chose not to. I mean, that's a hell of a thing that needs to be understood, isn't it? It is. And it's easy for us to point to certain countries that were occupied by the Nazis. So we can obviously we know about Germany, but we can say Austria or we can say Hungary and we can we can point and say it didn't happen here. It wasn't to do with us. We were the good ones. And I do think when you look back, it is a story of, you know, Britain did defeat the Nazis. The Allied forces did. And let's not get away from that. But, for example, the Channel Islands were occupied. There are plaques, a couple of plaques in the Channel Islands, which show, you know, where a family hid a Jewish woman, for example. That's not that far away. Yeah. And I think there's a tendency generally in human nature, isn't there? I mean, without wanting to go back to the recent torrid few years, you know, with the Labour Party, but I think we naturally have a tendency to be able to talk about something that happened to someone else somewhere else. We find it much more difficult to accept and confront our own reality. Now, sometimes it will be cowardice, sometimes it will be calculated, sometimes it will be a combination and many other factors. But yeah, we need to know about history, warts and all, don't we? I think I was pretty destroyed by all the anti-Semitism stuff in the Labour Party, and I've not talked about it a lot since I stood down, but obviously talking to you, I'm returning to it now. I remember one conversation just before the election happened, with a friend, I'm sure you know him actually, and he told me that he'd, his family had packed their bags because they were so frightened that Labour would have state power, that we could win an election. They were ready to leave the country. I mean, that rested very heavy on my shoulders. I obviously... I didn't think he had to fear that, but it didn't matter whether I thought he had to fear it or not. He did fear it, and I was part of an institution that had created that fear or not been able to prohibit the institution from creating that fear. I mean, that's what I was trying to get to earlier, Karen. I mean, you've had to live with that. I mean, you talked about the people that let you down through their silence. I mean, will you be able to ever forgive them? God, I, I don't know. It, those are personal things, and those are to do with me and my individual personal relationships, right? But it's not for me to forgive. There are people who were pretty much bullied out of the Labour Party because they were Jewish. There are people who suffered really terrible years of abuse as a result of being Jewish in the Labour Party. I'm not one of those people. So I, it's not for me to forgive on their behalf. So what I was talking about was more about people who I just thought better of and who know better, I know they know better, 
you know, I have moved on in the, but I always was moving on. I get on with my work. I'm very focused on what I want to do. But it, it's sad. It's just sad. But it's not about me and it's not about my relationships. That's just a, it's like a byproduct of what happened, right? The actual issue is that, as you say, an institution allowed itself to be overtaken by people who thought anti-Semitism was acceptable or who suggested that anyone who said something was anti-Semitic was a smear or made up. And by the way, when you follow debates at the moment regarding other issues of racism and certain presenters or broadcasters may suggest that's nonsense, look at the absolute outrage towards them that they could possibly suggest something isn't true or could be just a bit fabricated. Look at that. And compared to what was happening on a daily basis within the Labour Party. I mean, it is shameful. So, yeah, I, I know that there are lots of good people in politics. I know that there are lots of brave people in politics, and I saw them stand up and put their heads above the parapet. I still see it on other issues, don't get me wrong. Um, I care about other things beyond my core work. But, yeah, it felt like there was a blind spot, and I... I think it's just that point of hypocrisy, really. And I sometimes see people doing interviews or whatever else. And I just think the goal, the absolute goal. I have huge respect for people in public life and politicians. I work with many. I see the incredible good that MPs do. Um, so, so this isn't about all politicians. It's not about that. But I just think that, you know, my understanding of people going to politics is it is people who go in with principles and it is people who go in wanting to make a difference, you know, to really change and affect people's lives. I have those shared values, but I believe it really is important to stand up and be counted where it matters. Look, we know some of those people and I hope they listen to this podcast and I hope they hear your words. What I don't want to do, though, is end what has been a wonderful interview on such a sad note. So I'm going to try it in a, the most dignified way I can, feeling partly emotional about what you've just said, to say, what are you going to do to celebrate the end of lockdown? You're going to get off the Peloton bike and go somewhere. What's the first thing you're going to do? Well, first of all, by the way, Tom, I mustn't get off the Peloton. I've got to keep it going, <laughs> even when I'm allowed out of my house. You know, that's the first thing. I mean, I'm lucky. My family don't live that far away. I've been able to see them at a distance, not throughout, but most of this period. They are hugely important to me. My nephews and nieces and my brother and sister and my parents. I mean, we're very, very close knit. So to me, it sounds silly, but, you know, they are the most important thing to me to be able to spend proper time with them. But um, I am looking forward to a bit of fun. You know, I'm a very sociable person. Of course, I like my nights in, but I haven't liked endless nights in. I'm looking forward to just going out and having fun and seeing people and, yeah, living a bit. I happen to know that you are one of the cultural elites that loves karaoke, right? <laughs> Thank I, you for bringing this up. I know I voted you as a karaoke queen, but I want a night out and I want to do karaoke. I, I love musicals, by the way, as well as karaoke, whatever song you name it, I'm in there. But I love musicals. And I've started doing this thing where if I'm cooking, I'm blaring musicals, you know, or I'm in the car, I'm listening to like, I don't know, Smooth FM with all the 80s or 70s and 80s classics singing my heart out, <laughs> anything. Because, you know, it just lifts you, doesn't it? I can't wait for that sort of atmosphere again. Karen, it's a genuine honour to interview you. 
you always don't play the role you play in civic life in Britain, but I think it's immeasurable the contribution you've made. And I'm genuinely privileged to know you. And you are certainly a very wonderful human being. So thanks for your time. Oh, thank you, Tom. That was the remarkable Karen Pollock. The Holocaust was an unprecedented genocide, total and systematic, perpetrated by Nazi Germany and its collaborators with the aim of annihilating the Jewish people. The primary motivation was the Nazis' anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish racism. Six million people were murdered. The generation that lived through the Holocaust is dwindling. The presence of witnesses, the remnant who survived, has had a powerful impact on the people that they meet. Karen is privileged to have personally known many of them. But what a heavy responsibility that imparts. To tell their stories when they're gone, to honour the millions lost, to ensure that our children never forget. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producer is Lucy Pullen. This episode was edited by Nick at Podmonkey. The music is by Tom Gray. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.